Will you please turn in your Bibles to its very first page, Genesis 1. And we want everyone to own a copy of God's Word, so we have these to give to you. That The guys are going to make their way back to the back, and as they do, just get their attention. They'll be happy to get one of those to you as our gift to you. And we will today, as we have been the last couple of weeks, look at the very first verse in God's Word. Last year, a movie came out called The Theory of Everything. It's the story of the life of the famous and brilliant physicist Stephen Hawking and his now ex-wife Jane, as he and they struggled to deal with his battle with Lou Gehrig's disease while he, at the same time, authored books and achieved worldwide fame. But the title of the movie, The Theory of Everything, comes from a phrase that's used by scientists to describe their quest for an all-encompassing answer to the mystery of the universe, its origin and its function. They're looking for a theory that will tie together all that they know and much that they assume about our physical world. The search for the theory points to the truth that science doesn't have it. If they had it, they wouldn't be searching for it. And for all its very real accomplishments, coupled with sometimes just bravado about what it can achieve, alas, science has been unable to explain where everything came from and how everything we know is tied together. Now, in our first installment of our current series, which looks at the opening pages of the Bible, I said that everyone has a worldview. And I described a worldview as a set of lenses through which we all look at the world. And those lenses color all that we see and therefore how we interpret all that we see. A naturalistic worldview, one that says that all there is of reality is what exists within the physical universe. Those who have that view of the world are going to have a hard time. In fact, they're going to have an impossible time developing a theory of everything. Now, the aforementioned Stephen Hawking is an example. He's devoted his life to discovering a theory of everything. And in 2010, he wrote a book called The Grand Design. And in that book, as he must from his atheistic worldview, he said that God did not create the universe. And he says, quote, the universe can create itself from nothing. He goes on to say, spontaneous creation is the reason why there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, and why we exist. Now, in the words of those great theologians, Steely Dan, that weekend at the college didn't turn out as you planned. The things that pass for knowledge, I can't understand. Our world cannot be explained apart from God. And if you rely only on the physical universe to explain the physical universe, you will never. You will never arrive at a theory of everything. And here's why. Because science doesn't actually explain anything. Science describes what happens, but not why it happens. So take as an example the law of gravity. Newton discovered such a law, and Einstein explained it scientifically, right? Well, not exactly. 
What Einstein told us is that, just hang on for a few sentences, the gravitational force of two objects is the product of their masses multiplied by a universal constant called the gravitational constant and divided by the square of the difference between them. So he gave us a formula for gravity, but he doesn't explain why we're not bumping our heads on the ceiling. Not really. In the words of one scientist who is also a Christian, science tells us there's a force that keeps your feet on the ground, but you knew that already. And it also quantifies that force, allowing us to calculate its strength in a particular case, which is extremely useful. But it doesn't tell us why there is such a force, or why it follows an inverse square law, and why the gravitational constant has the value that it does. The equation that Einstein gave us is a description of gravity rather than an explanation. If you're going to look for an explanation of everything, then you're going to have to look beyond the physical universe. And you're going to have to look to a sufficient cause that would explain why we have a universe in the first place. And I invite you to the opening words of the Bible. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now, how can you prove that the very first verse of the Bible is the true theory of everything? Well, one way to go about that is to demonstrate the impossibility of the contrary. That is, there are things that we know to be true that can only be explained by the existence of life outside the universe, which is what Genesis 1.1 is telling us. This is called, a fancy term, the transcendental argument for the existence of God. And the rabbit in Winnie the Pooh understands how it works. In Christopher Robin's travels, the first person he met was Rabbit. Hello, Rabbit, he said. Is that you? Let's pretend it isn't, said Rabbit, and see what happens. And that's what the transcendental argument for the existence of Let's pretend there was no God. What if you don't have a God? Then life is impossible, and then life for you to live is impossible. If we suppose there is no God, what happens? And conversely, since there is, what would we expect to happen because that's true? We're going to do that today. Let's ask God to help us. Let's bow before him. Father, we again bow in humility before you because you are first the creator you have become our Father. you have become our Father despite ourselves. And Lord, you have overcome our tendency to rebel against you and the intellectual sin that we commit against you in failing to apply what you have shown us plainly in your world about yourself. Open eyes, we ask you, by opening hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Each week we have... For our message, an outline inserted in your program, and we have that for you today. If you'll take that out, and I have a couple of major points that I would like to make. The first one in that outline is this, that God was before the beginning. God was before the beginning. So when the Bible says in its very first verse, in the beginning, God. It's saying that before God created the beginning, and we will see that he actually created the beginning. The beginning had to start. 
And God created the beginning, but before there was the beginning, there was already God. And thus, in the beginning, God could then create. God was before the beginning. Now, what was God doing before the beginning? The Bible, in some of its pages, gives us a glimpse of what's sometimes called eternity past. Before time began, what God was doing. And that mostly centers around the planning of what God would do in and through creation. So we have an example of that in Titus chapter 1, where the Bible says God promised eternal life before the beginning of time. Now, I just want you to note that last phrase, the beginning of time. And I want you to just ask yourself the question that God made this promise before the beginning of time, And the question is, to whom would God have made such a promise since it was before the beginning of time? Who was around for God to make a promise to before the beginning of time? And yet eternal life was promised before the beginning of time. That same phrase is used in another part of your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And it says this, He has saved us and called us to a holy life. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus. Before the beginning of time. The very same phrase. And so to whom was this promise made? That there would be a people to whom eternal life would be made available and actually applied? That promise was made by God the Father to none other than God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what was God doing before the beginning? God was enjoying the eternal fellowship that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have enjoyed with one another. In fact, Jesus alludes to this the night before he was crucified. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays a majestic prayer. And he prays to the Father for himself. He prays to the Father for his immediate followers, the apostles. And then he extends that prayer in praying for those who will believe later because of their message. That would be you and me. But here's what Jesus says regarding himself. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before time. Later in that prayer, Jesus says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. The reason that there is love in time is because there was love before time. Love between the three persons of the triune God. So God was before the beginning. But other than God, there was nothing other than God prior to the beginning. Nothing. Now, we're going to see that in just a bit, that later in our message, that God created out of nothing, nothing existing except God. But for now, God was before the beginning, and I say in your outline, the universe had a beginning. The universe itself had a beginning. The universe had a beginning. Now, at one time, and for a very long time, scientists believed the universe had no beginning, that it always was. Stephen Hawking said this, So long as the universe had a beginning, we could suppose it had a creator. But if the universe is completely self-contained, having no boundary or edge, it would have neither beginning nor end, it would simply be. What place then for a creator? He asks. The idea of a beginning is most uncomfortable for some because it necessitates a creator. 
And so, for many scientists, they resisted that idea of there being an actual beginning to the universe. But with our ever more powerful instruments of measurement and our ability to observe space, scientists have been able to determine that the universe is expanding. And that implies that there was a beginning, a starting point for that expansion. But many have done that reluctantly. They've had to accept that fact, but they've done so reluctantly because a beginning implies a creator. When I was in college, I learned of Sir Fred Hoyle's steady-state theory of the universe. It recognized that the universe was indeed expanding, moving outward, but it attempted to explain that by saying not that it had a beginning, but there was, and this is a quote, continuous creation going on. Mind you, without a creator. Hoyle's theory eventually gave way to the Big Bang theory, but what both have in common is the undeniable fact that the universe is expanding. Now, here's the kicker. Galaxies appear to be moving outward at a speed greater than the speed of light. But that can't be. Because Einstein's special theory of relativity says that nothing can travel through space faster than light. So how do we see these galaxies appearing to travel at a speed greater than that of the speed of light? What's going on? We can observe the universe expanding and moving through space faster than is possible. And the answer is this. It's not the flight of galaxies through space that we're seeing. It's the expansion of space itself. Yikes. All right, everybody awake? So an often used illustration of that, and a helpful one to me at least, is an inflating balloon. And imagine a balloon, and if I really cared about you, I would have one and blow it up, but just work with me here, okay? But imagine you have this balloon, and on the outside of the balloon are buttons that are glued to it. And those represent planets and galaxies. And as this, and as this balloon is expanding, you see that the planets, the galaxies, the buttons are moving further and further away from each other, but it's because the balloon itself is expanding. And space itself is expanding. Now, all of this means that the starting point for the expansion, and this is important, could not have come from within space, but had to have come from outside of it. And what is outside of space? Nothing Nothing but God. And that's why Dr. Roland McCune, my theology professor in seminary, used to say, the universe can be defined as everything that is not God. Everything else is what this God, who is outside of the universe, and that means outside of space as well, created. We get the idea that God created from within space. That's the idea that many of us have. We picture God in the dark of space and then saying, let there be light. But God actually created the space itself, and scientifically, space had to be created. And that's why the very first line in your Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when it says that God created the heavens and the earth, that's what's called a merism, heavens and earth. It's a way of stating something to say God created everything. 
God created space and God created the earth within that space, the heavens and the earth. He created all things. And for the longest time, the Bible was alone in claiming that the universe had a beginning. And now science demands that the universe had a beginning. You know, friends, it just takes science a while to catch up with the Bible. And that's always the way it is. And the Bible teaches what must be the case, that outside the universe, there is nothing material by definition. So space was not only created, but created out of nothing. That is, ex nihilo. That's a Latin phrase that you'll read sometimes, which means out of nothing. And so when the Bible says, in the beginning, God created, the Hebrew word bara for created is a word that suggests creation out of nothing. It suggests that because there are a couple of Hebrew words that are used for creating or making. But bara, this word in Genesis 1-1, is only used of God creating. It's never used of man making or creating. That always uses the other word. Why is that? Because it's only God who can create out of nothing. So when you hear people saying that we can create intelligence, we can, we can create computers that will think on their own. <laughs> Look, stuff can only do stuff because intelligence puts stuff into it. That will always be the case. And God can create out of nothing and we can only create with existing materials. So God was before the beginning, and the universe itself had a beginning. And Jesus, God the Son, was there in the beginning as God. The Bible tells us that in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, just notice that phrase. John starts, very first verse of his gospel, in the beginning, just as the very first words of the Bible start, in the beginning, God. And John's purpose is to remind us now of that very first verse in the first part of the Bible that starts the entire story, in the beginning God created. And he wants to show who this one Jesus now is who has come to earth. And so he starts by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and notice the Word was God. So he was God and he was with God. No better way to explain the idea that there is one God, but there is one God in three persons. He is God, and yet he is also with God. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, this means that prior to the beginning, as I've said, there was nothing. Now, how do I know that? Because John's argument would fall apart if prior to the phrase, in the beginning, there was something. His whole point here is to point out that Jesus was there when there was nothing and he was the agent in creating all that came to be. So if you've ever had the idea that prior to Genesis 1-1, there was just stuff out there, there was stuff going on, John would beg to differ. The only thing that existed prior to the beginning was God himself. The Bible then hints at this idea. That the God who existed before time and who created the universe, the universe that had to have a beginning, that this universe is expanding. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22. He sits, God sits, enthroned above 
the circle of the earth. A few times in your Bible, the prophets speak of the earth as being a sphere or being a circle. So next time you have somebody tell you because you believe in scientific creation that you must be part of the flat earth society. You ever heard people do that in ridicule? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. The expanding universe expands because there was a God outside of space, outside of the universe, that began that expansion. God created out of nothing. God was before the beginning. The universe had a beginning. And I say secondly in your outline. Time had a beginning. The universe had a beginning, and time itself had a beginning. Now, just stay with me for a few minutes as I plow through this. But some of you are familiar with the three laws of thermodynamics. But The first two are the most well-known, the first and second laws of thermodynamics. The first is this. Energy is not naturally created nor destroyed. Energy is never created nor destroyed naturally. The second law of thermodynamics says this, the amount of usable energy is constantly decreasing. So energy is never created or destroyed, and the second law says the amount of usable energy in the universe is constantly decreasing. That's called entropy, or tending toward randomness. Now, what does that have to do with time having a beginning? Well, time is simply this. Time is the measure of change as the universe is transformed progressively from an initial highly ordered state to a state of increased disorder. Randomness. And the question then arises, who provided the energy input that established this ordered state at the first of the universe? God supplied the energy and thereby created the time that measures the change in energy from highly ordered to increasingly random. And this truth also validates the idea of eternity. Before the origin of the universe, time could not exist. Before the origin of the universe, time simply could not exist because until the universe was there, it could not be in any state of energy order, whether high or low. And time measures that change from high order to low order. Time had to be created. The universe had a beginning. Time itself had a beginning. And the Bible speaks of this. Psalm number 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. A thousand years in your sight are like a day That has just gone by. So God is outside of this space that he created and that is expanding. And that we are only now scratching the surface of knowledge about. And God is outside of time as well. Time for God is spread out. Imagine it kind of like a map. And just as we might study a route on a map showing that shows villages and townships and cities together with their environments and the roads that link them together. So God surveys all of history at a glance, encompassing everything that is to us past and present and future. And that's why the Bible can say of our God, I am God, and there is none like me. 
I make known the end from the very beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. The Bible says of this God that he is outside of time. In fact, that he inhabits eternity. Again, the prophet Isaiah, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I will dwell in the high and holy place. And the Bible teaches in accordance with this law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, that the universe is running down, wearing out, that there is a constant decrease in usable energy. There was a beginning of time, and time is moving toward an end. And so that's why the Bible says, through the psalmist, in the beginning, God, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. The psalmist goes on to say, like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded. But you remain the same and your years will never end. God was before the beginning. The universe had a beginning. Time itself had a beginning. But I say thirdly, God had no beginning. God had no beginning. And the Bible declares this very forthrightly, that God was not given life, but rather God is the giver of life. And here is why. John chapter 5, as the Father has life in himself, the Son also has life in himself. So there must be someone outside of the universe that has life that can give life, that has energy that can give energy in order to begin the universe. And that's precisely what the Bible teaches God is. John MacArthur said this. Herbert Spencer, a non-Christian scientist, hailed as one worthy of many prizes in science, died in 1903. His greatest achievement was that he discovered the categories of the knowable. That is to say, he determined that everything that exists fits into one of five categories. And this was hailed as a massive cataloging of realities. Spencer said everything fits into one of these categories. Here are the five. Time, force, action, space, and matter. And this was hailed by the scientific community. Time, force, action, space, matter. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. The earth, that's matter. Everything that Herbert Spencer discovered in 1903 or before that was in the very first verse of Scripture. The Bible says that God created everything, and in saying that, the Bible gives us all the categories that exist. And he did this out of and from nothing. That is, with no pre-existing material And God did it by the creative power of his word. God was before the beginning. Secondly, God is evident after the beginning. God was before the beginning. There is a beginning because he created it. There is a universe because it had a beginning that he created. There is time because God had to create it. 
He is before time. He is outside of space and outside of time. He was before the beginning, but God is evident after that beginning. And he's evident in a number of ways. That evidence is all around us. I'm just going to give you a few in today's message. I say in your outline that he is evident in physiology. Physiology. That is, God is evident in the structure of things. Physiology. God is evident in physiology, molecules and cells and DNA. DNA speaks a language. And scientists use that kind of terminology. Language. DNA speaks. DNA has information that is encoded. DNA speaks in an orderly language that could only come from intelligence. Now, I want to just take a few minutes, five to be exact, to allow someone to say it a bit better, quite a bit better than I could. So we have a five-minute DVD, we think, and then I'll, I'll come back. If simple water molecules that form ice crystals exhibit magnificent structure, consider the design ingenuity behind large, complex molecules, such as DNA. DNA contains the blueprint for all life and is by far the densest information storage mechanism known in the universe. For example, the amount of information contained in a pinhead volume of DNA would fill a stack of books 500 times higher than from here to the moon. The program code and design of such an incredible system indicates a supremely intelligent designer. The evidence to me that just cries out that there's a God is the study of DNA. DNA is a very powerful, massive information storage system. In fact, DNA that makes up our genes actually is like books of information that's read by a language system. It's absolutely phenomenal. And scientists know today that language as a code only come from an intelligence and information only comes from information. Nobody's ever seen matter by itself give rise to a code. Nobody's ever seen matter by itself give rise to information. And as you look at DNA, it actually cries out. In the beginning, God created the universe. We all begin as a single cell the size of a period at the end of a sentence. How does that cell know how to build a, a body with 100 trillion uh, cells in it, thousands of different kinds, and each one of them is so complex, nanochemical machinery beyond our comprehension how it works, and encoded is the instruction manual. It's the manufacturer's manual how to build and operate every part of this incredible body made up of 100 trillion cells. Furthermore, DNA is a three-dimensional molecule that is self-replicating. Each molecule is able to make an identical copy quickly and efficiently. The Lord has even programmed DNA to detect and correct replication errors. These sophisticated capabilities far exceed man's means. 
God has created the DNA molecule in such a way that it is self-correcting. There are special proteins called enzymes that go up and down the DNA molecule looking for and making repairs on a minute-by-minute, second-by-second basis. God created us with a DNA code that actually has what we call editase or editorial type enzymes. Just as an editor reads a newspaper or a book looking for mistakes, so God has created special enzymes that go up and down our DNA molecule repairing the mistakes in ways that are unbelievably complex. There are many examples in creation of of things that demonstrate the biblical God. Uh, One would be in our very DNA. Our DNA has information in it. And there is a whole field of scientific study called information science, which studies how information originates, how it's transmitted, and so on. And one of the laws of information science says that information never originates by itself in matter, never spontaneously comes about. Anytime we trace uh, the copying of information back to its source, it always it always comes back to a mind. And since we have creative information in DNA, that tells me that DNA comes from intelligence. It's not something that could possibly come about through millions of years of mutations and natural selection. That just won't work. Yet even the DNA molecule is simple compared to cells. All life consists of cells, and each cell functions as a miniature city. When we consider that a human body consists of trillions of cells working together as one unit, we should be in humble awe of our Creator's intimate care and perfect wisdom. You notice that the narrators and those that were interviewed each said, the Creator has programmed, God has, the Lord has. Well, that's because they are Christians. And that's because they wear the lenses of a Christian when they look at the facts of, of science. But I heard one atheistic scientist say, the universe, when we observe it, gives the appearance of having been designed. But we must constantly remind ourselves that it was not designed. That's because he's wearing a completely different set of lenses. God is evident after the beginning in physiology, the structure of things. But I say secondly in your outline, he is evident in psychology. In psychology. When I say psychology, I'm talking about how the mind works. How the mind works. And there are two categories of theory regarding how the mind works. One is called monism, M-O-N-I-S-M, monism. We mono singular or one. And so monism is the idea that between the spiritual and the physical realms, there's really only one, and that is the physical realm. That there is no spiritual aspect, no immaterial aspect to the mind. Monism says that it is physical, that it is strictly material. Atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell was a naturalist and so a monist regarding psychology and the mind. This is what he said. That man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collections of atoms. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair and the soul's habitation henceforth can it be built. 
Only on the firm foundation, he says, of unyielding despair. Why? Because there is no God, says he. There is no creator. And all of my thoughts, then, are not spiritual thoughts with significance, but rather simply a collection of atoms, accidental collections of atoms in his word. In monistic explanations, the mind becomes meaningless. Our thoughts are preordained by self-maintaining electrochemical processes, which are themselves dictated by our genes. Avowed British rationalist J.B. Haldane said this, If my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true. They may be sound chemically, but that does not make them sound logically. And hence, I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms. I can't be sure of anything that I think is what he is saying. Practically, this means that we've moved in psychology from the old days of Freud when you blame your parents for your behavior to now our day when we blame our genes. But let me give you just a couple of examples that explode the idea that the mind is simply matter, that the mind is simply physical, that monism is reality. One author said this, the final nail in the coffin of monism is the long-assumed but recently proven fact that thinking, the mind, can change the activity and performance of the brain. Clearly, this can never be the case if thought is simply an inconsequential byproduct of brain activity. In a column in the Times of London titled, If You Pay More, You Enjoy More, biochemist Keeley describes work by a professor of marketing at Stanford Business School. This professor gave the same wine to a group of people on two different occasions. But the first time, he said it cost $45 a bottle, and the second time, $5 a bottle. Unsurprisingly, the group declared that the more expensive wine tasted better. However, he also used functional MRI brain scans to examine the pleasure centers of his subject's brains and found that those centers lit up more strongly when they thought they were drinking expensive wine. The volunteers' false beliefs really did affect their brain activity, not the other way around. Do you guys get that? You think even before your brain engages. We think that thinking is all the gray matter. But in fact, our thoughts are more than just the gray matter. In fact, the spiritual component operates on the gray matter. A second example is in a recent study over a period of eight weeks, recreational athletes were given either growth hormones or inactive placebos without knowing which they were taking. At the end of the study, volunteers who took placebos could sprint faster, jump higher, and lift heavier weights than they could before. And the volunteers who thought they were taking performance-enhancing drugs, were actually, but they were actually taking placebos, outperformed everyone else in their group. Notice, what they thought affected the physical. And so, rather than monism being the truth, the truth is that dualism is the truth. That the world is both matter, the world is physical, but the world is also immatter, immaterial, spiritual. And in the very first verse of the Bible, you have that assumption. In the beginning, God created matter, but this God is outside of matter. 
This God is spiritual, and this God is immaterial. The Bible presents, and creation ex nihilo assumes, a dualism of spiritual and physical, of immaterial and material. And then lastly, he is evident in physiology and psychology. He is evident in morality. He is evident in morality. Now, if you were with us last week, I dealt with this at some length. And so if you were not with us, I encourage you to listen as we have all of our messages on the Internet. But the idea here is that all of our arrangements, all of our human arrangements, all have law at and rules at their center. And the only explanation for that fact, that in all human arrangements there are rules and there are laws when children play games, without being told to make rules when they play a game, there are some rules. And there are always those laws and those rules because this world was made by a God who commands. And from the very first moments of creation, God said, let there, and God commanded. And now the world follows in the model set by its creator and its God. And this morality that then we all assume, that it's wrong to kill and it's wrong to steal, all comes to us from the original law giver. Now, in your take-home truth, then I say this. Apart from God, we would not have life, we would not have breath, nor anything else. Apart from God, you would not have the breath to deny God. Apart from the existence of the Creator, who is necessitated... His existence is necessitated by the existence of this universe, by the existence of time that had to have a beginning. Science is catching up with the Bible, and you would not be able to deny this God if it were not for the existence of that God. And so it is my hope that today, that some would bow their heads and their hearts before the God who made them. And the Savior who bought them by his blood. This God has... Eternal God has stepped into time, has stepped into space and time, and has done so for you and for me. And Jesus died the death that you deserved. And Jesus lived the life that I was designed, we were designed to live. And he offers his life and his death to you so that you can have a relationship with the God who made you. Now, in just a moment, we're going to bow and pray. But what are you to do in order for you to establish this relationship with this God? You're to realize that you are a sinner. And you manifest that sin. We manifest that sin all in different ways. Sometimes in our behavior, often in our behavior, sometimes in our thinking. There is such a thing as intellectual sin. Refusing to believe what God has placed in front of you. And if you fit into that category, then I invite you to confess your sin against God of the mind, of your thinking. Realize you're a sinner, but recognize that Jesus died for your sin. And repent. Lord, I am going to follow you. You made me. You're my God. You're my creator. You're my Savior and my Lord. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow and pray in just a moment, you bow your head with us. And from your heart to God, in your own words, you say to him, I realize that I've been running from you. I realize that I'm a sinner. I've been going my own way. I ask you to forgive me and apply what Jesus did in his life and death to me personally. I give my life to you. Let's bow together.
Our Father, we thank you for this sacred time that we could ponder these difficult and yet delightful issues. They are delightful because, unlike Bertrand Russell, we know that there is an intelligence, there is a God that is behind what we see and that has made us as we are. We know that our thoughts are not just random collections of atoms, insignificant in the grand scheme, but rather there is a grand scheme because there is a grand designer, and that is you. We thank you, our God, for entering history, time, and space on our behalf. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I pray, God the Holy Spirit, that you would draw some out of the world into yourself, now, and that these persons, like all of us are called to do, would become mouths that have denied, go from mouths that denied you, mouths that perhaps cursed you, to now mouths that proclaim you and praise you. And all of this is to redound for your glory, the glory of the one and only creator. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.